Let's look now at God's holy word, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then over in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 3. We continue to read God's holy word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts and minds now for the preaching and hearing of your holy word, that we would have our hearts stirred up to greater assurance and trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and a holy zeal that flows out of that trust and that love for him and your love for us that is what creates our love for you. We pray that that zeal then would uh, cause us, Lord, to want to tell others about the Son of God and to testify to him as uh, the Savior of all who look to him. Strengthen your servant here and your servants in every place that we might preach your gospel accurately, fully, effectually by your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this chapter is about Jesus' public anointing. Remember, the word Christ is the uh, Greek word for uh, the anointed one. It's actually Christos, but we bring it to English as Christ. And in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it was Messiah, the anointed one. You'll find, uh, for example, in Psalm 2, it will talk about God's anoint, the Father's anointed one. And uh, it uses a form of that word we would... We would uh, uh, translated into English as Messiah, and, it, and 
there were three main offices in the Old Testament that were entered into by an anointing of some kind. Uh, there was anointing with oil to become king of Israel, God's covenant theocratic people. There was anointing with oil to become priest, and particularly the high priest. And there was, a, at the very least, an anointing by the Spirit in a man becoming a prophet. And actually, we know of at least a couple cases where the prophet also was anointed. For example, Elijah anointed his successor, Elisha. And uh, Jesus, you see, fulfills all that was uh, looked at all that was intended by the idol of prophet, priest, and king for God's people. He is the priest who offers himself up as the sacrifice for our sin and intercedes for us at the Father's right hand, the work of a priest, a preeminent. Uh, he is the prophet. He is the message of the Bible. By his spirit, he gave us the Bible. By his Holy Spirit, he opens up our hearts to understand the Bible, and he is the prophet. And then he is the king. Uh, he is that great son of David as well as the son of God. And as our shorter catechism says, he subdues us to himself. I've always loved and appreciated that, that idea. You know, it's, um, if you're conquered by love, it doesn't feel like being conquered. Did you ever notice that? You know, if you're conquered by force, that's one thing. But if love conquers you, uh, you don't even, it doesn't even seem like you've been conquered. It just seems like you've been lovingly brought in and he conquers us. He overcomes our sinful darkness and enables us to believe his gospel and to be his people. Jesus is Messiah. I want to be clear on that. He is Messiah from the moment uh, he comes. But this is his public anointing, his public, uh, God publicly bearing witness uh, by more than one witness. There are multiple witnesses. You know, in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you find uh, affirm this idea that a, a matter legally is confirmed by the testimony of what? Two or three eyewitnesses. And we have our witnesses here in our text. Now think about when uh, Pastor Hard uh, was ordained as a minister of the gospel. There were witnesses right from the start all the way up through, and actually the ordination is the church's witness, saying that we've examined this man, and we've trained this man, and we have every reason to believe he's called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, and we're setting him apart for that purpose. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure it began with uh, members of a local church that began to say, you know, I, we think Ian... Uh, may very well be called of God to preach the gospel. And then eventually there was a session or um, leadership in the church, and they recognized that formally. And then at our, our conservative Reformed seminaries, when you go to seminary, the session or the elders actually send a witness, a recommendation that they believe there's good reason to believe this man is called by God and therefore needs to be trained for the ministry. And so he completes his studies. And even then, after all those exams and all those papers and all that reading and all the rest of it, we don't just hand the man a piece of paper, an ordination certificate, and say, you know, good job. We don't hand that to him along with his, his actual degree. No, he comes before prosecutor, and they examine him again. Uh, and some, some of this is pretty thorough in our conservative Presbyterianism, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, that sometimes we're, we're really picky, and I'm glad, and you should be glad that we're picky. And finally, you come to this ordination service, and the church through the eldership is proclaiming this man, we, again, we have every reason to believe now, has been called and gifted by God, the Holy Spirit, and we need to hear him as he proclaims God's word to us. Well, this is Jesus's uh, uh, anointing, his public ordination, you might say, as, as Messiah, much more important than when I was ordained or when Pastor Hard was ordained. Uh, we're ordained to proclaim this one who's being anointed here because he is the anointed one. There is no other who is prophet, priest, and king of our salvation. Now, 
the gospel according to Matthew, then, can be viewed in a sense as a testifying document. This is true of all the gospel accounts. Uh, in other words, this is, this is like, like a, um, an ordination certificate. In other words, God says to us, he testifies, this is my son, this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one, this is the one who is the whole message that I'm conveying to you. This is the one by whom you come to me. This is the one who will make you right with me. This is the one who is, has purchased uh, pardon for all your sins and, is, and will reconcile you to me as you put by, your, by his grace alone your trust in me. It's also similar, by the way, to you who are elders uh, to presbytery minutes, you might say. You know, there's, there's kind of an examination of Jesus in the book. And it comes out, yes, definitely, he is who he said he was. That's especially seen, by the way, in the gospel according to John. John actually takes the approach of, here are these witnesses, boom, 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 boom. And this really is, you know, the Son of God. This really is the Messiah. So uh, when I preached through Matthew many years ago, uh, my outline of the first three chapters of Matthew, uh, I, I entitled those first three chapters, The King Comes, or The Messiah Comes. And in chapter one, the king is born, isn't he? And he is witnessed to there. There are witnesses to him by Old Testament genealogy. You know, we, we go, uh, we trace right on down to Jesus being the true Messiah, the true son of David. And uh, uh, by Old Testament prophecy, he mentions these prophecies, begins to mention some of the prophecies fulfilled uh, by Jesus coming and in his life and ministry. And also by angel, you know, the angel came to Joseph, right? And said, this is who this really is. Don't be afraid to take Mary uh, to, to be your lawful wedded wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In chapter two, the newborn king is sought after and he's witnessed to, and this is interesting, he's witnessed to by both enemy and friend and by Jew and Gentile. Herod seeks after him to kill him, but as Herod does that, you know, why is Herod doing that? Because it's, it's unintentionally on Herod's part a testimony that this is the Messiah who's a danger to him in his mind. And a friend seeks for him, the Magi come, and they seek to worship him. And, and so Jew and Gentile are seeking for him. What a, already we have that, that, um, conveying to us of the universal nature of the gospel, the new covenant, that we're moving beyond just a theocratic nation like in the Old Testament, earthly theocracy, to the whole world being called upon to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Magi, of course, are Gentiles. And then in chapter 3, the king is anointed as Messiah. The, he is witnessed to. First, by Messiah's divinely appointed herald. Remember, a herald goes before the king. And I, I don't know if any of you grew up in a, a country that, if we're all native-born Americans here, if any of us grew up in a country where they had a king, but uh, when you had absolute monarchs especially, when the king came through the city, they would blow trumpets usually, and a fellow might go before saying, make way, make way for the king. And in some countries, you even were supposed to bow down as he went by. And that's what John is. He's a herald of, of Messiah, of the king. But Jesus is also witnessed to by every person of the Holy Trinity. And so first, the king is anointed as Messiah. He's witnessed to by the divinely appointed Messianic herald. And in verses 1 through 12, we look at John the Baptist's person, his ministry, his message, Verses 1 and 2, his coming and his message is uh, reviewed for us. Um, this all takes place after Jesus has been born, chapter 1, uh, after Jesus was a boy in chapter 2. And as a matter of fact, if you put the whole four Gospels together, if you read a, a synoptic um, uh, approach to the four Gospels where they put them in four columns and line them up, you'll find that around 30 years of age, which was the age a priest entered upon his, his active service in, in the Old Testament Levitical system, 
And remember, John is of the priestly line, uh, but he, he begins to preach this, this message. And about six months later, Jesus comes to be baptized by him. And John is six months older than, than Jesus. As you read through Matthew and Luke, you see that very clearly. So John comes, and he begins his public ministry by preaching God's truth in the region of Judea, in, in the wilderness, uh, the people had to go out to him. See, this is the first part of their repentance. This is a message and a baptism of repentance. And in repentance, you're humbled before God. Uh, you confess your sin. You turn from your sin. You turn to God. Uh, it, it's no longer me being in charge, but uh, I'm now listening to the living God as I'm being uh, connected with him. And so the first part of repentance was, you go out to where he sends you, and it's out in the wilderness. It's not a convenient place, really, to go to. And that's what uh, John preached, that they were to come out and to be baptized as a baptism of repentance. The truth he preached was that Messiah was near at hand. And so the establishment of the eternal kingdom of heaven was very close. Therefore, let all repent of their sins so that they could be ready to receive Messiah and enter the eternal kingdom of heaven by grace alone. Repent means to turn from sin to God. Repentance is a, a gift of the Holy Spirit in his sovereign application of Christ's redemption of sinners. And I'll mention this again, just so I want to get so we get this clear. Grace enables us to believe true saving faith, one of its fruits is repentance. Just so we understand, we're not being justified by being sanctified, but faith will produce repentance. And when I say it produces, I don't mean there's a long stretch of time, but I mean that's kind of the logical order that, I, you know, as I come to God, receive pardon, I repent. Or another way of looking at it is my first act of repentance is to acknowledge I'm a sinner, to repent of all my legal works of self-righteousness and believe in Jesus and then after having done that, I repent as a follow-up to uh, being connected to God in Christ by doing gospel works. And the thing is, it's the same law that defines moral law that defines legal works and gospel works. But in the legal works, we call them, the Puritans called it that because I was trying to produce those works to make myself right with God. And gospel works or evangelical works, another term for it. Uh, the Puritans use that for the, the, the life of repentance that flows out of knowing I've been freely forgiven and pardoned by God in Christ. John is saying, repent, turn to God uh, because Messiah has come. John uh, was uh, foretold himself, and we look at his way of life and, and the prophecy of his coming, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Matthew tells us that John's coming and his preaching fulfilled the prophecy given to Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And now that would be seven centuries before the fulfillment. Isaiah prophesied around 700 B.C. And uh, John's is the voice then that, that Isaiah had prophesied of that cries out in the wilderness, commanding people to prepare the way of Jehovah, to make the way of Jehovah straight and clear for him to come to his people. Make way, make way, the king comes, or, or um, prepare the red carpet by repenting of your sins, for Messiah is coming to him, us. Let, let him find us ready and um, eager for his coming by God's grace. Now there's another prophecy about John the Baptist, also found in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. There, uh, the, the herald of Messiah comes as Elijah the prophet, sent by God before the great day of Jehovah's coming, so that the hearts of his listeners would repent and not experience eternal salvation from Messiah instead of eternal, I'm sorry, not experience eternal judgment from Messiah instead of eternal salvation. And the Gospels let us know that this means that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. By the way, have you noticed in these prophecies about John the Baptist, this, uh, it's at least implicit 
that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. Uh, the, the herald is always coming before Jehovah, before Yahweh. And he's saying, Yahweh is coming, make way. And then the gospels say, well, that's John telling us that Jesus is coming. And so, you know, it drives you to the conclusion that Jesus is not only sinless man since the incarnation, but from eternity has been God the Son. Now, all of this is important, what we've just looked at here, because in our text, uh, John purposely lives like Elijah, who lived in the wilderness, as we read his story in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, Elijah is described as a hairy man who wore a leather belt around his waist. And this would be a very rough uh, hermit, wilderness kind of image. Uh, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, I, Packer or Stott or one of those um, reformed men of the previous time here, um, compared this to like a hillbilly. Now, those of us who grew up the Beverly Hillbillies uh, don't quite picture Jethro, though he had a belt around his waist. And so, I mean, his belt was a, a rope around his waist. But forget the humorous part. This is a picture, though, of someone that um, just isn't with it from the viewpoint of, uh, you know, current society. And uh, he lives on wilderness fare, locust and wild honey. He wears a rough skin of camel hair, which, by the way, would not be very comfortable, with a leather belt around his waist. Not only nothing fancy, but nothing even really normal. There's, a, there's total self-denial, no earthly possessions. This is Elijah coming again before the face of the divine Messiah. That is an Elijah-like herald. The herald of the king comes before the king. So the people will ready themselves for being in the presence of the king. And so we're to be prepared for King Jesus by repenting of our sins by God's grace. John came as God's tool for the Holy Spirit to make this happen. We read of John's success in verses 5 and 6. All Jerusalem, the capital city, all Judea, the region of the Jews in the center of which was Jerusalem, all the region around the Jordan, Canaan land on both sides of the Jordan River. That is, Israel as a nation came out to him. Picture this. Multitudes came to him. Most of the people came to him. And they came to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And again, if his message is a baptism of repentance from sin and preparation for Messiah, and their baptism then was a baptism signifying and sealing that repentance and so a commitment to welcome Messiah as their sovereign king. Well, they listened to the word of Messiah's herald and confessed their sins as part of that repentance in preparation for receiving Messiah into their land to establish the kingdom of heaven. If all that's true, then if they don't hold to this commitment, and you see the majority of the nation did not, then they have broken covenant. And instead of salvation from Messiah, they must expect what? Judgment for breaking the covenant. The destruction of Jerusalem and the nation in AD 70. See, flows right out from this. Now, uh, there's an elaboration, verses 7 through 12, on John's command to repent. And what occasion this elaboration, which follows, is uh, the coming of the Pharisees and Sadducees to be baptized by John. Uh, if you want further elaboration, read Luke chapter 3, where John addresses different groups of people in society and tells them what repentance will mean for them. But here we, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were supernaturalist. They did believe in miracles and angels and the supernatural, but in many ways they were similar to certain groups of uh, fundamentalists who concentrate on the letter instead of the spirit of God's word. As Jesus put it one time, they would strain the gnat and swallow the camel. They, it, was, it was as if they devoted themselves to the Bible and then got the whole message wrong. And then on the other hand, the Sadducees were in some ways similar to our rationalistic liberal theologians and ministers. They were anti-supernatural in many ways. They didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in spirits, 
you know, they, um, they uh, didn't really uh, believe in miracles. And so these groups both came out, and it's always interesting that they join forces. Uh, as the opposition to Jesus grows, it's like the, you know, the, uh, what is it, the enemy and my enemy is, uh, is my enemy or something like that, you know, uh, or no, is my friend. I guess I got that wrong. But anyway, they united. I got that saying altogether wrong. But they, they, they united together, though they hated each other because their hatred for Jesus was even more than their hatred for one another. And they, they both seem to have recognized on some level, perhaps, that, that John's baptism came from God. They come out to be baptized. Maybe they just don't want to be outdone by the common folk. You know, they were, both groups claimed to be very pious. And so maybe when they saw the majority of the people going out to be baptized by John, whatever they personally thought about John, and we know that they didn't necessarily believe him from later on the, the gospel accounts, um, maybe they, they didn't want to look like they were less pious than the people. But whatever their reason was, John seems to refuse to baptize them until they manifest clear outward evidence of a sincere heart repentance from sin and unbelief. And so the clergy and religious spokesmen have more difficulty being approved for this baptism than the farmers and the sheep herders and the craftsmen and the unskilled laborers. Jesus called these religious leaders a brood of poisonous snakes. Because when you get too close to a viper, you're in great danger. And if you listen to the teaching of either Pharisee or Sadducee, you're in great spiritual and eternal danger. John knows they're not coming for the right reason. Again, why are they coming? Has someone, he says, warned you to flee from God's wrath for your sins of hypocrisy, self-righteousness, and unbelief? If so, produce the fruit of true repentance in how you live your life. Because you see, repentance has clear fruit. It's not just words, and it's not just sorry feelings. He says, let them not think within their own hearts. We are Jews. We have Abraham as our great forefather. And so we have Abraham's blessing of salvation. Jesus says, God's able to take these stones here. And he probably, or John said, um, uh, God's able to take these stones here. And he probably actually pointed to some stones there um, by the river and, sa and said, God can make these stones into children of Abraham. Well, in a way he did. Through the preaching of Messiah and the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, uh, the hard-hearted, the stone-like Gentiles later are going to be made into sons of Abraham spiritually. He actually does it, but he says here God can, God can create children of Abraham where he wants to, but true children of Abraham manifest that they know God, that they're right with God. They manifest repentance, repentance that's a manifestation of true faith. But those who don't bear such fruit of repentance, there will be judgment instead, no matter whose descendant we are physically. With the coming of Messiah is both salvation and judgment. Even now, John says, the ax is ready to chop down trees that aren't bearing good fruit of repentance. And those chopped down trees will be thrown into the fire and burned up. John has come baptizing with water as a sign and seal of repentance in preparation for Messiah. But Messiah is coming soon after John. Messiah who is mightier and infinitely more important than John. John sees Messiah as so important, so much more important than himself, that he's not worthy in himself to be Messiah's lowest slave, the slave who carries his shoes. Messiah will baptize with that which water baptism signified and sealed, namely baptism with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, the elect are baptized into the invisible church as he works faith in Jesus Christ in our hearts, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Even as the church water baptizes believers and their children so that they are seen as members of the visible church. Acts 2, 38 through 41. What about this idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? What does the fire mean here? Well, sometimes fire was actually used in reference to salvation 
in the Old Testament prophets. You know, you're, you're purified and made one of God's people. But here, because of what he immediately goes on to say, he probably is saying those baptized with fire by Messiah are those who have rejected him, and therefore they will have judgment. And those um, baptized with the Spirit, they are those who by the Holy Spirit have been brought to faith in Messiah and are put into the visible, I mean the invisible church, and are therefore uh, those who are recipients of his eternal salvation. Messiah, as he comes, will have a winnowing fan to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat was that part of the plant you would you would uh, make flour with or mill with, and you could you would eat then. And the chaff was the part of the plant that was of no edible value, and they had to separate those in order to take it to the mill and have it turned into flour. And um, Messiah will separate them. He will thoroughly purge his threshing floor, that is the world. He will gather the wheat into his barn. That's heaven, the new creation that will never grow old. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is, those who are not prepared for him by grace will be destroyed forever in hell. So let the Pharisees and Sadducees take warning. But let us also take warning. The king is coming. And only by repentance and its fruit, which itself is a fruit of faith, which is a gift of grace, can we be the wheat and not the chaff. So verses 1 through 12 describe for us John the baptizer's person, ministry, and message. The message and ministry is about the coming Messiah who was right there ready to be made known to Israel. And John bears witness to him and to his messianic work as Savior and Judge. And so in verses 13 through 16, we have John the Baptist and Jesus. John bears witness to Jesus, this man from Nazareth as Messiah, when Jesus comes to be baptized by him. At first, he bears witness to Jesus by hesitating to baptize Jesus. Jesus comes from Galilee, where we have seen him last in Matthew chapter 2 in the Gospel of Matthew. He comes to John at the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tries to stop Jesus from being baptized by him since this is a baptism signifying and selling repentance from sin. And Jesus has no sin to repent of. Instead, John affirms that he should be baptized by Jesus. And by the way, he is, spiritually speaking. Did, did they know one another as cousins? Now, we know that Mary and Elizabeth are described in our translations as cousins, but that word could mean pretty distant relation. Remember, they live quite a distance from one another. Uh, Elizabeth and, and um, John were in, or, or Zacharias was in um, Judah, and Jesus grew up in Galilee. So they may never have seen one another, and that's what I suspect because of the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, where John says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize told me that I would know who he was when the Spirit came down upon him in the baptism. And so in this way, that's one of the chief purposes then of John's baptism. And John bears witness then to him as Messiah, as the promised divine king. He bears witness to Jesus as Messiah as he proceeds to baptize him, since this was the occasion for the testimony of heaven itself. John, as he baptizes Jesus, uh, you know, baptizes Jesus because Jesus explains the necessity for this. And then this miracle happens that is a public anointing of Jesus. And so Jesus' identity is not left up to mankind's guesswork. He is Messiah. He is the King. He is the Son of David who will reign over this eternal kingdom of heaven. Jesus is anointed as Messiah. He's witnessed to by a divinely appointed messianic herald so that we have no excuse for our unbelief. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus as Savior, God says in his word many times that you have no excuse that will stand on the day of judgment. God has borne witness to Jesus as the Savior that you need and he has actually commanded you and me to trust in this Savior. 
It's not just an invitation. It is a sweet and gracious invitation. It's also a divine command. All men are to repent and believe in Jesus. And God bears witness of that. Now, the king, again, is, a, is anointed as Messiah, and he's witnessed to by an even more important um, witness than John, as important as John is, having been sent by God, he's witnessed to by God himself. The Holy Trinity on this occasion bears witness to who Jesus is. First of all, the king, as he's anointed as Messiah, is witnessed to by God the Son, by himself. In verse 15, uh, Jesus is presented as both God and man in chapter 1. Remember that he is God's Son in both his divine nature uh, that is, he is God's son essentially and eternally, and in his human nature from conception in Mary as the true man who fulfills what all others have failed to perform. Uh, in other words, especially we see this in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is God's son in being God the son from eternity. He's also in a different sense God's son in his humanity. He's the true man. He's the man who manifests the image of God that we were originally created in, and we have all messed up in Adam, our first father. But he also is the son of God, as the, the sinless man, as the son of man. And as God-man, he explains the need for this baptism and so bears witness to his own person and work. He commands John to baptize him. This must happen if we're to fulfill all righteousness. The, uh, I must be baptized by you for the accomplishment of that complete righteousness, which is the salvation of God's people. First, it's necessary for Christ's active obedience. And I'm, I'm sure Pastor Hard has mentioned to you this idea of, of Jesus' righteousness. There's the active obedience of him, uh, of Christ, and his passive obedience. The active obedience to review is his perfect sinless life where he perfectly kept the moral law as the son of man, as the man Jesus, and he did that in our place, on our behalf. And then there's the passive obedience, not passive in a grammatical sense, but from the Latin for suffering, his suffering obedience. You know, he must go to the cross and die to pay the penalty price for our sin if he is to perfectly obey the purpose the Father sent him to obey and so in his active obedience, if God's commanding at this time all men to repent and be baptized by John, the man Jesus must obey this command, even though he doesn't need to repent, he receives the baptism that God has commanded that all Israelites partake of at that time. So it, it's part of his fulfillment, you see, of his active obedience. But more importantly, and I think our, our uh, Protestant theologians especially have been accurate in understanding it this way, this is part of his fulfillment of his passive or suffering obedience. If he's to bring righteousness to pass, the perfect fulfilling of God's law that's been broken by us sinners, he must identify with us sinners. He must die for our sins. And this is the beginning on a human public level of that identification. This baptism, Jesus receiving a baptism of repentance when he never needed to repent himself, is a is looking ahead to what? Well, the cross, where he takes the full penalty for our sin upon himself. This, this is part of him beginning to put himself in our place, taking our guilt upon himself insofar as he's identifying with sinners as the sin bearer. So this is part of his perfect fulfillment of righteousness in his active and passive obedience. In his fulfilling divine command and his taking sin's guilt upon himself, he fulfills righteousness by saving us, by accomplishing all that God ordained for his people as far as knowing and glorifying and obeying God in his word. God the Son, then, in this way, by, by presenting himself to be baptized, bears witness to himself as the Messiah as he submits to that baptism. And then secondly here, my second sub-point on this, this last major point, the king is appointed as Messiah, being witnessed to by God the Holy Spirit. As Jesus is coming up from the water, and I believe this means walking up from the river, from the way the, the, the Greek reads, uh, I don't believe it's saying that he's coming up out of water like an immersion, but that he's been baptized, he's walking up from the water. This takes place after the baptism. Uh, 
they, John and Jesus see the sky opened up and the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus in a visible form. Now, the Spirit comes in a form like a dove. That is, something visible happens, so this is a very public anointing of Jesus. But what happens is something that looks like a dove. It's not a dove, but it looks like a dove. The Holy Spirit, who is invisible, somehow takes on a temporary appearance that can be seen. Now, there are a couple possibilities here. Many have thought this spoke of Jesus as the king of peace, that a dove speaks of peace. And, and that's fine. You know, a dove is, a, is an animal, that a bird that often was thought of in connection with peace and safety and security. But I lean more toward the view that this has to do with sacrifice still. A dove was used for sacrifice in the Old Testament. And I think this is, you know, the son of man is preparing himself as the sacrifice for sin. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because this should speak to, to probably many of us here who probably most of us are not millionaires. And in the Old Testament law, you were supposed to bring a bull and certain uh, sin sacrifices. But if you couldn't afford a bull, bring a lamb. And it gets on down. Finally, if you can't afford that, uh, a couple doves or a couple young pigeons will do. That's what the poor people brought. And Jesus here comes and he offers himself you see, as the sacrifice for our sin. And this is, this is signified to us already in this baptism as the Spirit comes down upon him. Now, here's the point. He alights upon Jesus and doesn't leave. I don't believe this means that, it, you know, for the next three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, something that looked like a dove was sitting on his head. I don't think it means that. The point is, is that the, the temporary visible form came down and neither Jesus nor John nor the people saw that form go back up. It signified the fact that this is uh, the man who has the spirit, as John says, without measure. This is the spirit-filled man in terms of Jesus' human, sinless human nature. And uh, the spirit, you see, is bearing witness that this is David's son, the Messiah, the eternal king of righteousness. And then finally... And uh, uh, finally, the verse 17, the Father uh, testifies or witnesses to Jesus as Messiah, as he's anointed. The voice came out of heaven, behold, or suddenly, right as the Spirit alighted upon Jesus. It took everyone by surprise. That's what that word behold, you know, is the idea of, man, look at what just happened. Now, there are only a few places where God speaks out of heaven. And in many ways, the most important one, perhaps, in the Old Testament would be Mount Sinai in the original giving of the Ten Commandments. The, the, the law of perfect righteousness as far as the moral law itself. And is that the point here? Or part of the point here? Here is the one who will fulfill those Ten Commandments. Is God the Father, as he says, this is the one I'm pleased with, because he's saying, this is the one who's going to fulfill righteousness for you sinners. At last, you see, there's this one, says the Father, who doesn't have to beg me not to speak to him any further. You know, if you remember the story in the God speaking when he gave the Ten Commandments the first time, um, the, the people heard the voice of God out of heaven. And there are probably many people today who foolishly, with very low views of God, would, would say, well, I wish I could hear God talk out of heaven. That's not how it felt with those who did hear him speak out of heaven. When God spoke the Ten Commandments, the people cringed with fear and recognized their own unho unholiness and their lack of worthiness. And, and this, is, this is the absolutely holy, almighty God. And they begged Moses, please, Please ask God not to speak to us any further. Have him talk to you and you come talk to us. But you see, here is the message as Jesus is baptized. The father speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Who is he? He's my son. He's my beloved son. My beloved son who really and completely pleases me. He's the son of David who is perfectly a man after my own heart. He is my eternal beloved son. He's the one who can hear my voice and not be left in a state of fear and trembling. 
He's the one who has a right, you know, has this full connection with me, the Father. And therefore, he is the one who can put you right with me. Who can, who can bring you to me, the eternal God, as your Father. So could there be a stronger witness to Jesus as Messiah, as the eternal divine King? God the Son, as he identifies with lost sinners to fulfill righteousness. God the Holy Spirit, as he who is invisible makes himself seen to do the actual anointing. God the Father, actually speaking out of heaven, identifying Jesus' person and his perfect accomplishment of his divinely appointed work of redemption. So I want to close. I've, I've, you know, there's the purpose of this chapter, I think, should be clear to us. And so I'm not going to take a long time on, on uh, application, but the application is critical. First of all, warning that I've already mentioned earlier. Now, maybe everybody in this room is trusted in Christ. And um, I, I, my own conviction is, is that whenever I preach the gospel, and if I don't know everybody in the room, I will present the invitation and the command to believe the gospel, God's word. This is the point for you. If you have not never trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, you need to do so. God has borne witness to him. God has testified. God has given evidence. God has given proof by raising him from the dead, by the voice out of heaven, by the Holy Spirit coming upon him, by this word that, that is God's word that records all of this. God has given the evidence that's needed. Now, I know that there are sinners who, who might say, unbelievers who might say, well, I don't think the evidence is that overwhelming. Well, on the day of judgment, God says that he's going to declare it was that overwhelming. He's going to say, I gave you all the evidence you needed. And if you didn't believe, ultimately, remember this from John chapter 3? It wasn't an intellectual problem. It was what? It was a moral and spiritual problem. You didn't want to come to the light. You didn't want this to be true. Uh, there's someone uh, I'm close to who... Um, uh, fell away from the faith he was he was raised in. And uh, there was one point um, when he first fell away, he pretty much acknowledged that he didn't want to live by uh, the rules, you might say, by by what God says is right and wrong. So, he, you know, he, did, he didn't want it to be true. And it wasn't ultimately, you know, I couldn't sit down and say, well, here are evidence for God being true and the Bible being truly God's word, etc., that the, he had been trained on all of that. He just didn't want it. He wanted to live for his sin. God says that won't, that won't get us through the day of judgment. He has spoken clear enough. And he says he's the only one that's going to make the decisions that day. It's not what I think or what you think on the day of judgment. It's what God says, that, that what he says, what he thinks. And then, for those of you who have believed, maybe everybody in this room, assurance. This one, you're going to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to partake together of uh, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, uh, the sign and seal of Christ's broken body and shed blood. And uh, is, this, is this of any real value? Well, yes, Jesus really is the Savior. He really is the Messiah. He is the king who gives entrance into the eternal kingdom of grace. He is the one who by his Holy Spirit granted us repentance from dead works, repentance unto life. Repentance and all its fruits are, the, as I've said before, the, the fruit, uh, the product of true faith. And uh, the Father has given us true faith. He is pleased with his Son and he is pleased with all who are in his Son by faith. Jesus really has fulfilled all righteousness. And that means, first of all, and this is first of all, it's first in priority and first in time uh, in our individual experience of salvation, we are declared righteous in our justification. We trust in Jesus. His righteousness is legally reckoned ours. That connects us to God. Being connected to God, there's a transformative aspect then to the gospel. 
In other words, you, you're, you aren't transformed and then you're worthy to be justified. But when you're justified, totally unworthy in yourself, Paul even dares to use the expression, God, God who justifies the ungodly in the epistle of the Romans. He justifies the ungodly. They're ungodly at the moment they're trusting. And then by connecting us to himself legally, then with that relationship now, he begins to make us new people. And it's all through Jesus Christ. Have assurance. Have assurance. You know, I, I so much appreciate the Reformed and also the Lutherans do this too, of, you know, confessing our sins and being assured of our, the pardon for our sins. Uh, you know, I grew up in a Baptist tradition where that was like understood, but not always explicit in how we worshiped. I'm so thankful that there's this, you know, assurance of pardon that God from his word through the minister reminds us, you know, those who trust in my son are pardoned. And Matthew 3 is telling us, yes, that's true, because you see, he's able to do this. He's able to pardon your sins. He's able to connect you to God. He's able to continue his grace so that he who began a good work in you will complete it into the day of redemption. He is able. This is who he is. He is, he is who he really said he was. And God has proven it. He's given us testimony. Uh, testimony after testimony. Think of all the things you believe on the basis of experts. You know, I I was thinking this week, in a sense, I believe the earth circles the sun and not vice versa on the basis of, of the experts. I mean, I just I look at the sky, it sure looks like the sun's the one going up and coming down. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm I'm not in some super high position in space where I can, you know, from another solar system, look back on it and see how it's going. These guys, who I think are really smart guys in regard to natural science, assure us that there are plenty of reasons to believe that the Earth circles the sun. And the sun doesn't circle the Earth. And I, I accept that. We accept all kinds of things on the basis of other people's testimony. Here God comes in these various witnesses, and he says, this is my son, trust in him. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to put all our trust and all our confidence in your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that we could look into your word together this morning, and we pray that we would go forth with profound assurance as Christians and also with a desire to tell others of their need to trust in Jesus as the only Savior and the only Savior for sinners and the Lord of glory. Lord, we pray for our time now in uh, communing together in the supper of your Son. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.